This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome. Today is November the 18th. My name is John Dunn, and this week on the Best Friends Podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. You know, we've spent a lot of time over the last 18 months on the podcast talking about best practices. We've shared the stories of shelters and rescue organizations across the country that are doing incredible, inspirational, life-saving work. And I hope along the way that we've helped you learn and grow. Maybe we just helped you see something differently. And that new perspective helped you to be more effective in your own life-saving work. Because the goal here is to share with each other what we know, what is working, what today are the best approaches, the best practices. Whether it's community cat programs, open adoptions, intake diversion, we should all be getting behind proven strategies that save lives. And I just told you it's proven, and I can even point you to data that backs it up, so that alone means you'll believe me and change what you're doing, right? Of course, it's much more complicated than that. Convincing folks that certain programs are the right programs isn't always easy. In fact, it can be really, really hard. And especially when these conversations happen online, it can be pretty unpleasant. We've all seen those posts on social media in our animal welfare groups, right? You may have even participated in one or more, no judgment, Uh, but things can get pretty heated. Uh, Let's use open adoptions as an example. Someone posts something about using home visits and vet references as part of their adoption process. Someone will jump in asking why. Someone else jumps in and questions the policies and suggests they're making it harder for everyone. And by creating barriers, it's going to lead to more animals unnecessarily dying. Then someone else jumps in and says, hey, we always use home visits, vet references, landlord checks, background checks, and they're always going to do it no matter what anybody says. And then someone else drops in to share links to studies. You get the point. We've all seen it. A couple hours later, 100 plus comments and everybody's mad. So did any of that discourse help at all? Probably not. But it couldn't have made things worse, or did it? Because we're human beings with brains that are capable of so much. But the same brain, says this week's guest, produces a mind that is deeply flawed. We are, as he says, unaware of how unaware we are. We are social primates who are trying our best to understand the world around us. And we all have much different motivations and we have much different social pressures from one another. Anytime you're speaking to a person, you're not just talking to their motivations. You're also talking to the ramifications of what, the, if they were to change their mind or if they were to exhibit different behaviors, you have to focus on them. You have to have cognitive empathy for where they're at. And you have to really think about it from where they're coming from. If you take the other track, which is I need them to see it the way I see it. You're focusing on you and you're not focusing on them. This is David McRaney. He's a journalist and author. He spent more than a decade studying the psychology behind cognitive biases, fallacies, heuristics. I've been working this beat for 12 years now. So like I've read enough, I, I never stopped reading research papers and talking to psychologists, neuroscientists, uh, cognitive researchers. In a way, like, you know, you get to be more plugged into what's going on than maybe someone who is, you know, a full-fledged psychologist because they're having to do their psychology work. Uh, I keep, I get to keep a bird's eye view or, or find little things uh, that I find fascinating and jump into them for weeks at a time. So it's basically like I'm always working on a dissertation. I'm always writing my a research paper in a way. 
which is good because as the field changes, I get to keep up with that too. I was very excited to chat with David. He's also a podcaster. We'll have a link to his show on our website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. His podcast is called You Are Not So Smart, which is also the name of his first book. He's got a new book coming out next year called How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. In our field, we're constantly in a state of change. Doesn't it feel like that? New ideas, new programs, new techniques. Oftentimes, they run contrary to what we've always believed to be the best approach. So I think it's important that we consider how our own minds may be impacting our work for better and for worse. And we're always involved in some form of outreach, trying to change the hearts and minds of the public, changing attitudes about adopting shelter pets, for example. Any of you who have done work related to community cats knows all about the attitudes people have towards cats, positive and negative, and the challenges that may exist in finding acceptable solutions for all in any given neighborhood. So, changing minds, our own and the minds of others, can it be done? And if so, how? Here's my conversation with David McGraney. The way all of this started, my like short version of my biography is I was, uh, I used to work in all sorts of things. I, I, I back in the nineties, I uh, owned a pet stores, owned two pet stores. Eventually that work uh, did not appeal to me. I went into it because I spent my childhood on farms and my grandparents' farms during those summers and uh, always had a deep affinity for that sort of thing. But getting into the business of raising animals, selling animals, I eventually got very, uh, it was very, uh, it eventually eroded parts of my soul that I did not want to have taken away from me. So I, I, I left that business and decided I wanted to get an education. And, and what I did is I went to school to be a psychologist. Somewhere along the way, I started writing for the school newspaper. And then I took an internship for an actual newspaper. And they just so happened to have lost their, their, their main reporter. And that led me to uh, be off on my own as the main reporter for a small uh, newspaper in the Deep South, where they just handed me a, a camera and gave me a desk and said, go to the city council meetings and figure it out. And I did, and it was fun, and I really enjoyed that. I liked creating, I liked, and I got really into literary journalism, all the gonzo stuff, all that kind of thing, and started trying to infuse newspaper work with that kind of writing. And then eventually I got this degree in journalism, this degree in psychology, and had these dual degree things that I didn't know what to do with exactly. So I went to work for a, a big newspaper. Higher education was my beat there. I eventually made my way into TV journalism, where I was... Uh, doing the website stuff and social media stuff. At that point, I was no longer writing and I was no longer doing anything fun and blogs had become a thing. And so I started a blog that I thought would be fun based off the Darren Brown person swap experiment, which I always love talking to people about. That's an experiment where they're on a college campus and someone is asking for directions. And then two people walk between the person asking for directions and the person giving the directions. And one of the people that walks between the two switches places with the person who's asking for directions. And then the person who is giving directions does not notice. And they know they don't notice because they will debrief them afterward and say, hey, did you notice that that person is a different person? And they'll say, no. I was like, how could that possibly be? So I looked at the research and it was like um, roughly 50% of people, sometimes 30, depending on the conditions, don't notice. And I felt like that's something probably true about everything. Like we probably don't notice a lot of the things that are happening around us. And, but we have this sort of undeserved confidence that we do notice. And I thought that would be a cool idea for a blog that only talked about certain things like that in um, psychology. And at first I just sort of shared stuff from around the internet, but then I started writing longer and longer essays. And uh, I wrote one about brand loyalty 
why people get very angry when you attack a brand that they're sort of connected to. Like some people get very angry, get pers feel personally attacked when you ridicule Apple or ridicule Android or ridicule Ford or Chevy or something like that. Uh, at the time, nobody had really written anything that was a, that was out there in the public space about how identity can be wrapped up in something like that. And that one article, it went everywhere. It just went super viral. And that brought in uh, some agents who I said, would you like to turn this blog into a book? And I said, oh, yes, please. And so that became a book. And then it just was, I was just in the right place at the right time. Thinking Fast and Slow had just come out. And this was sort of a coffee table version of that. I, I sort of went through all the cognitive biases and I tried to make it very funny and very practical and very down to earth for people who weren't necessarily psychology nerds or weren't willing to read a 300 page book about something like that. So that just changed my entire life. That's how I got to end up where I'm talking to you right now, because that book ended up uh, becoming a bestseller and there was it's in 19 different languages. It's published in 15 different countries. Just last year, it was the number one book in Vietnam for a couple of, for, for a while. You know, it was crazy. It just keeps bouncing around the world. So I wrote a follow-up to that called You Are Now Less Dumb, which sort of just keeps going with it, and uh, which I like that title a lot, but nobody ever seems to laugh at it as much as I do. And then I, I started this a podcast to, to sort of promote that book. And that changed my life even more because it turns out that I really, really like podcasting and I wanted to get really good at it. And I just invited people who were doing the research and would talk about different topics and started doing big episodes where I would like explore one topic and not just have one researcher, I have like 15. And then I've been, I've been doing that for, for years now, for about six years. And the topics get deeper and, and more uh, relevant to, the, to what's happening right now. And I had done so much work at that TV station on their Facebook page where the people were talking about, I remember when same-sex marriage was being debated and it was something that was being debated as much as anything that's, that becomes sort of a wedge issue that rises to the top of public consciousness. It was very debated. And I was in the deep South, this was in Mississippi, where it was being debated differently where I was at. I was watching people debate and be very angry and be very confrontational about the very idea of this. It was shocking to me when the attitudes changed about same-sex marriage. I saw a pew poll where you could watch, you could see the two lines where it was like against and for 12 years ago, roughly 68% of the, of the United States was opposed to same-sex marriage. And then today, 68% of people are in favor of same-sex marriage. So the majority of, of America, millions of people could get into a time machine and go back 12 years. And if they met themselves on this issue and probably lots of issues, they would disagree with their own selves. So what I wanted to know was, despite all this work in psychology that I've been doing all these years, I didn't really understand how people change their minds. Like, like what happens in a brain when a person changes their minds and how does it get changed? Like what are the influences is it persuasion? Is it uh, are, are norms? Is it activism? Is it advertising? Is it politics? And even if I do understand what the source is, what's the mechanism? I became obsessed with this concept. David, this topic, it's just, it's always been so interesting to me, these cognitive biases, you know, and obviously in the context of this conversation, confirmation bias, the backfire effect, you know, how we are open or not open to new ideas. Uh, and I just thought it would be a great topic for the podcast. And I was trying to figure out who should we have on. So I come across your books and your podcast. And then on your bio, it said, and I think you've changed it a bit since then, but it said something to the effect of, I once owned two pet stores. Yeah, don't do that. So I thought, who better could we possibly have on than the person who has written the book literally on this topic, but also had his own moment of animal related realization and changed his mind on pet stores. A big part of what I did toward the end of that part of my life was uh, 
bust up puppy mills because they were so they're so prevalent in the deep south. And I would just do a thing where I would pretend like I was very interested in, in buying from them. And then when I would get there, I would uh, if I verified it was a puppy mill, I just you know called the cops on them, and we would bust them up pretty routinely. Uh, but I hate I, it was just awful, right? And just I just uh, I just couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> That's the honest truth of it. And so yeah, your 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 goals and mission, and your values are very in line with mine in that regard. That's great to hear, and thank you for the work you did uh, in that regard. Uh, let's hope other pet store owners have the same epiphany. Uh, you know, we're in the nonprofit world in animal welfare. Folks listening to this, some will be with municipal governments, foundations, but you know, it's all kind of in the same space, right? Altruistic work. It's also emotional work. And that change in, you know, your relationship to, to being a pet store owner, it was emotion that changed your mind, right? So you saw animals in horrible situations, realized your contribution to that. And that kind of flipped a switch where you said, you know, I don't like this. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be associated with it. In fact, I'm going to do the opposite and actually work to stop illegal breeding. So that changed your belief. So when we're talking about the work we do in animal welfare, David, you know, it's human beings with all of our I think you call it undeserved confidence, which I love. Uh, so are these human beings caring for other living beings? And the people who commit their lives to the work, there is a drive, like a deep-seated drive to protect those who cannot protect themselves. So, you know, if I say to someone in the field, what you're doing today, what you did yesterday, what you're doing today to save pets isn't the most effective approach. Well, how do I know that? Well, here's some data that will show that. Also, I have my own experience. I tried the new thing and it worked for me. So, you know, you try the new thing. But I think it's difficult to get folks out of the old ways of thinking, especially when it is legitimately, we are talking about lives on the line. This is not always true. A lot of very innovative people in animal welfare, but on the whole, I do think it can be difficult to get everybody behind some of the, the latest and greatest. You're on the right path here for how this is going to work. When it comes to changing minds, uh, here's my first piece of advice for anyone. The first thing we have to do is talk about what does that phrase even mean? A lot of this stuff seems obvious until you ask the question, if I want to change your mind on, on, a, on something, what is the thing that I'm targeting? Am I targeting a specific belief or am I targeting an attitude or am I targeting a value or am I targeting a, a behavior? Um, the good news is behavior is going to come downstream from all three of those. So you can, you're always targeting behavior. So you don't really have to worry about that exactly. But it is important that you, don't, that, you, that you realize that a belief is not an attitude and an attitude is not a belief. They interact with one another and they form sort of a higher order mental phenomenon. But if I, let's say you don't like the president, whoever the president might be. And I'm like, do you like the president? Let's, let's name the president uh, Tom, Tom Baker, uh, so that we're nice and bipartisan. You're like, I love Tom Baker. And I'm like, I hate Tom Baker. And then I just say, you should hate Tom Baker. Here's why. Okay. Oftentimes in that dynamic, it feels like what we're arguing about is a belief. I believe Tom Baker is a bad president. I believe Tom Baker is a good president. In psychology and neuroscience, this is not a belief. This is an attitude. An attitude is a valence, meaning positive, somewhere along scale from positive to negative, estimation of something that comes out in words like good, bad, positive, negative, attraction, repulsion, words like that. Often we try to articulate attitudes, but they're difficult to articulate because they're an emotion. They're in the domain of emotions. You get positive feelings when you think about this attitude object, as they would say. No different than when I say, uh, if you love chicken pot pie, you get positive feelings when you think about it. If you hate chicken pot pie, you get negative feelings. Attitudes are 
the result of experiences that you've had around that attitude object and the things that are associated with it. And some of the experiences you have may just be words, may just be conversations you've had with other people. You may not have direct experience with it. You may have secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand experience. Wrapped up in that also may be sort of concepts, norms, and social conventions that are related to the issue. There may be some identity stuff in there as well. It may be a sort of reputation management thing that's taking place. To be a good person in the eyes of the people that matter to you, holding a certain attitude is sort of a signal that you are a good person in that, in that world. So there are many things that will affect the eventual attitude you have, but it's not a belief. The only belief you have is, I believe that I don't feel, I feel this way, right? So this is, the belief is, is, is almost irrelevant. In a lot of the early research and a lot of the early activism with things, uh, most of this happened around World War II because there, there were people who were trying to manipulate attitudes about the war on every side, every country involved. A lot of the early messaging thought you just had to teach people the facts and they would naturally change their minds. And this is something called naive realism. It's the concept that my attitude about this issue is the attitude anybody would have if they had seen the things that I'd seen and heard the things that I'd heard. So naturally, if I show you the things that led to my attitude, you will share my attitude. It's called naive realism because it's the assumption that your position is the default position and that the world is sort of a one-to-one -one representation, that you're just getting it mainlined. It's neglecting the, the, the fact that there are filters and motivations and that you have a unique experience derived from your life leading up to this and the culture in which you are in and all these things. All that stuff sort of is invisible to us. It's the, it's the water to the fish it's just not part of our day-to-day -day experience. We just feel we just feel the conclusions. We feel the end result of it. That's true for attitudes, and it's also true for for beliefs. Like uh, certainty is the emotion that is re relevant to belief. We just had the time change, right? Because of daylight savings time. You may think that it's, it's uh, seven a.m. and it's actually eight. And if I tell you, hey, it's it's eight a.m. and you're like, no, it's seven a.m. Your certainty is very high that it's one way. But then I explained to you, no, daylight savings time, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, cool, cool, cool. And then your emotion changes and your certainty wanes, and then you update your priors. Very easy to do with a, with a belief like that. If I tell you that, uh, turns out we're, we're in a simulation right now, and this is not, uh, you're not having a conversation with me. I'm an avatar created by uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, we put the goggles on you in your sleep and, and, and loaded you up in Novocaine. Okay, that's difficult for me to change my belief in that regard. But Plausible? Maybe? I don't know. It could be. Well, maybe not two years ago. <laughs> right. If you have a strong attitude about something, what happens is, I think the best way to explain it is, is use a metaphor. So let's say you're in a tent in the middle of the woods. You hear a sound in the woods and you think to yourself, I think that might be a bear. So you get up with a flashlight and you start looking around for the bear. Well, what's happening is you have a strong emotional reaction to a piece of information that is ambiguous. And so you're interpreting that as it could be one thing or another, but one of the could be's is so dangerous that it's worth investigating. So you go out looking for it and you feel like your, your behavior is justified. Your behavior is justified because what if it is a bear? So you have a strong emotional reaction and you are responding to it in a way that you feel is just, and you're looking for information to confirm that your emotional reaction was justified. And that's, this is what we often call confirmation bias. You've put on goggles to confirm that your emotion was justified and your emotion is based off a hunch. And you might be the kind of person who sees, you know, a broken branch or a, a, a depression in the, in the ground and go, mm -hmm, see, it was a bear. This is what people often do online. So you have a strong emotional reaction to something that happens, let's say in the news, 
you turn on your flashlight, you put on your confirmation goggles and you go looking for confirmation that your emotion was justified. The difference between the woods and the internet is that on the internet, you can find confirmation for anything. Like if you look hard enough, if, if your only motivation is to confirm that your emotion was just, you will get your confirmation. And oftentimes, though we may not want to admit it to ourselves, the only motivation we really had was to confirm that our hunch was correct. And the reason we want to do that is because we want to seem like our emotions are justified. So in domains like politics, or domains where people's identities are at stake, the primary motivation is going to be to look like your anger or your your passion is just that makes you appear to your trusted peers as a good member of the group. And that's the re that's the, the source of the motivation in the first place. So if you're trying to talk to somebody about an issue they're passionate about, and you want to change their minds about it, the first thing is to, is to answer, what is it that I'm trying to change? If it's, if they say, if they think that the earth is flat and you're thinking that you want to change their mind about that fact, which would be a belief that you're trying to change, you might go for it with facts yourself. Look at this fact, look at this fact, look at this fact. But what's outside of the discussion that you haven't may have, that you may not have realized is that those things seem like facts to you because you come at this with an attitude already built in that makes those facts seem on the face, you know, prima facie, they seem like they, they immediately ping you as true. Well, they look at those facts and they immediately ping them as questionable. It's not so much that they are convinced the earth is flat. They, they are convinced that the government is lying to you. And the fact that the earth is flat is confirmation that the earth is flying, lying to you. They arrived at that because they were motivated by this emotional search for information, which was to confirm that their fear of the government and fear of institutions was just. So even though it seems like you're, you're trying to change their mind about a belief, what you're actually aiming at is an attitude. And the attitude is much deeper than, than the belief itself that you're working on. So in most regards, the only real method that I've seen that works is unless you're a scientist, unless you're a lawyer, unless you're an academic, unless you're in a domain where you both have agreed on sort of the game that's being played, you're in a good faith environment where facts matter because everyone is sort of beholden to the same structure of how to parse information. Most of us are not in that kind of discussion. The method of debating and changing minds in that domain is called topic rebuttal. The other method, which works just as well, but is better used by people who are, who are not experts or who are not in a good faith environment, is called technique rebuttal. And technique rebuttal, most people have seen at least one form of it, which is uh, the Socratic method is a form of technique rebuttal. The method is to, we're going to work backwards through your reasoning process, through the chain of your processing to solve a mystery together, which is why do you find this fact compelling? Why does that seem like that's true to you? Why do you hold this attitude that you have? Just by exploring that, almost it's almost like inevitable that people will update their their understanding of something. There's a whole other thing that we can get into about how how minds actually come to these things. That's through a process called assimilation and accommodation. But you don't have to understand that to use these methods. The method of of reaching out to people then is to not start at the conclusions and work only in the conclusion space. That would be the space of just facts, information, and the, the end of the, res of the reasoning process. Instead, what you need to do is say, okay, let's, let's say the issue is uh, something related to what you're talking about, which is uh, the ways that you could create a positive outcome when it comes to the welfare of animals. And you have, because you're an expert on the topic and you've done so much research and you, you've probably changed your mind a million times in the process of figuring out how things actually are, 
you've got this thing that you know the facts are on your side. And you have this other person who has not done any of that, who has some motivation that has led them to wherever they're at with their, with their conclusions. So we need to start with, okay, so what is the claim? Where, where are we at? What is the, how do you see this issue? And then you ask for a person to give you a measure of confidence on that issue, uh, sort of a measure of their certainty from zero to 100 or, or from one to 10, however you want to construct it. And once you get that, you can just say they're an eight out of 10, whatever you're talking about. You can ask questions like, if you're an eight out of 10, how come you're not a seven? And what you're trying to get them to do is back up from the conclusions and start moving into the space of how they reach them. And you're asking them to really consider like, why do I feel so confident about this? Why that number and not another? And that begins a conversation. That very first thing puts you in a frame that's going to be much more helpful because now you're in a conversation about something that isn't necessarily the issue. It's about the person's reasoning process. And that's huge. That's, that's, I've seen that in about uh, 12 or or 15 different domains that use technique uh, rebuttal like that. And their results are enormous compared to people who are just trying to brute force shove facts in people's faces. I've seen it with vaccine hesitancy. I've seen it with uh, climate change. I've seen it with same-sex marriage. I've seen it with just about every issue, whether it's purely fact-based or it's something more along political lines. We're talking about policies and values. And also before you do that, you have to build rapport. I guess that's uh, something... Uh, I should have mentioned that we're social primates. So we're very keen and hesitant to enter into a space that has social costs attached to it. If I get the sense that you're saying to me, I should be ashamed for the way I feel about something, or I should be ashamed for holding a certain belief or value. I will disengage from this conversation. I will then begin to look at you as an other. Uh, Then I'll look at you as an enemy against me and my social unit because you're suggesting that my reputation, I I have a lower reputation than I currently have among others. That's very dangerous to me as a social primate. This, This could lead to ostracism. So I'm going to vehemently oppose that and try to salvage my agency from you. Also, if I feel like you are trying to coerce me, you're trying to force me to change, then I will feel so worried that my agency is at stake that I will fight back against that very strongly as well. And uh, if I feel like you are saying that I'm another, you're saying like, I, if you're saying you're on the side of good people and I'm on the side of bad people, I just want to kick you in the teeth right off the bat because you're, you're othering me. And we are more worried about being othered than we are anything else. It is a vital and um, life or death concern for human beings. So you have to establish rapport. It's very important in the beginning to say like, look, I see it this way. I want to be right. I want to do things that are good. I want these outcomes. I don't want to win an argument with you. I want us both to be like working together to do the thing that's important to us. You have to establish that early on. In fact, most of your work may be in that one thing. Like, how do we work together to create this outcome that we both care about? I've seen it in politics as well. Like, you know, let's say I thought we were talking about like um, there was, we were really debating the border all through the Trump presidency. And those debates only had any kind of positive outcome when people both at the beginning agreed like, okay, well, what is, what do we value about this? Like what seems to be the problem? And if both people can agree on what the problem is and both people can agree on what they want the outcome to be, then we can say, well, let's look at what we're actually doing. Is that actually doing what we want to do? Or is that creating more bad than good? And now we're having a a totally different conversation than this is how it should be. Uh, I, I don't know. I've sort of scattershot it around a little bit here, but all these things, you can do this in steps. Once you build rapport, once you have a claim, once you have a sort of measurement of where a person's confidence is, 
you then move on to why do you feel so confident about that? What are the reasons that you believe or justify that level of confidence? And then you can get to what you're really trying to change. And this is sort of my big proselytizing moment, uh, which is when you're trying to change someone's mind, what you're really trying to change is their epistemology. You're trying to change is the method by which they arrive at their conclusions, or you're trying to at least alert them to what is the method that they're using and, and show them that there may be a different way of looking at it, a different epistemological framework. You don't have to say any of that explicitly, but it's important to say, to get to a person's, what method are they using to determine that these reasons are good reasons for holding this level of confidence in their attitude or opinion, or perhaps even the certainty they feel in a belief. And once you're in that conversation, you can then move on to, well, here's how, this is what I'm hoping to get out of this. And you can talk about it in a way that is more like solving a mystery together than it is trying to brute force your opinion on theirs. But I have the facts on my side, right? I have the data. In some cases, animal welfare, we've been able to get a lot of data in the last like 10 years or so. Uh, and, and so we can show you the efficacy of certain programs. And David, these are unassailable truths. I'm going to interrupt you right there. Why do you feel that way? Well, that's it though, isn't it? Because I'm now sitting here listening to you talk, wondering what is truth anymore? Is my own truth even true? Yes. That's the third that you, you have to do this first before you even start to do outreach. So why do these facts seem like facts to you? Like, where, how do you know that these are true? What motivated you to go looking for this information and what made that information satisfy your standards for, for proof evidence, right? Where, where are you coming from? Is it, it, you may not know this. A lot of people enter into activism or into outreach or persuasion without asking themselves, how did I arrive at my position? And if you don't understand how you arrived at your position, you're not going to have an actual conversation with someone. You're going to have a debate and debates have winners and losers. And the only person who wins a debate is the person who learns nothing. It's the person who walks away thinking the same thing they thought when they walked in. There's no value in that. A debate is an attempt to say, my way of seeing the world is the only way of seeing the world. My way of seeing the world is the right way of seeing the world. Your way of seeing the world is the wrong way of seeing the world. And if we create a debate, then both people will be trying to win. And this is going to go nowhere. Even when you're debating something that I agree with you on, like I'm talking about David McRaney will agree with you. And I think that like, yeah, you're right. Like, I, I wish people thought that. I, I think that, that what you're fighting for is good. I still know that when you fight for it in a debate framework, you're going to gain almost no ground. That's not how we change minds. We change minds by enlisting their reasoning process, by enlisting their values and their motivations to the thing that we're trying to solve. And if your mission really is, let's say, animal welfare, if, like, if that's actually what you're going for, then you should be hoping that this person can help you change your mind in ways that maybe you need to change to better reach that goal. They may be, there may be an opportunity there to learn something in that conversation even when you know the facts are on your side. So my first question would be like, why is this issue important to you? And the evidence that feels like it's in support of this particular conclusion, why does that evidence, how did that evidence cross the line to your personal standards of, yeah, that seems like how it is. So I would ask you to ask that of yourself. You know, that's where I would start. Well, it's a great question. And I bet if I'm being real about it, a lot of my personal beliefs about animal welfare really were just influenced by someone else in the field, a peer, someone I work with, uh, I've been very lucky to be able to meet hundreds, I know thousands of people over the years who are experts in what they do. I pick something, dog training. I know very little about dog training. So I go to people who do know that and I learn from them. 
And then I do some research on my own. And, you know, I can usually get to what I feel is a good place of understanding uh, on my own on any issue. So with all of this data we have now, that in its own way is frustrating because we have the data now, right? Like we have the data, but unfortunately it's not universally accepted to be the game changer uh, as many would like it to be because data is just numbers on a page. It's not, I'm not looking into the animal's eyes. I hear you. So I'm going to put this into some frameworks. One is I understand this compulsion, which is I have looked at this and I feel like my reasoning, my motivations, and my due diligence has led me to look at these this particular data as compelling toward a particular conclusion. But that's all me. So this is the first thing I ask you to do for yourself. This is what happens when I look at this. And these are the facts that stick out to me. But this is just taking the end of that process and then dumping it on another person is going to do almost nothing because they have to also go through that process. They have to get to a place where they would have done that on their own. They would have scoured the internet or scoured the research and said, aha, they may not, in their current way of thinking about the world, their current construction, their worldview, their schemas, their motivations, their attitudes, they may not do that. They may look at that same information and interpret it completely differently from you. That means you can't just dump the facts on them and hope them to change their mind from the facts. So let's move back to uh, the, your audience member who we're talking about, the person you're trying to reach out to. They, if they seem to be someone who would be on your side, like they want, they also feel very passionately about animal welfare in this regard. Try to see what led, leads them to that. They might have an equal level of passion, but have a different motivating sort of incepting drive toward that passion. So that needs to be identified first because you need to speak to that. Uh, you don't speak to it from where you're coming from. Speak to it from where they're coming from. If they disagree with you about how to how to achieve that goal, uh, now we have to look at like, well, there must be some reason why why what seems compelling to you isn't compelling to them. They might have a, a distrust of of institutions. They might have a distrust of um, like perhaps the facts that you're presenting to them are coming from institutions that they have some sort of dis distrust toward. That distrust may be justified in their eyes for different reasons, right? And so now we need to address the trustworthiness of the source. You, what you should be noticing is that we're moving back from the conclusions each way, each time. We're focusing on that on them. Uh, there's a term for this in, in uh, NYU they call cognitive empathy. I like to use the example of the dress for this. Uh, you may have heard me talk about this in the podcast. Do you remember the dress? Oh, yeah, absolutely remember the dress. Love that. You look at the dress. Some people see it as black and blue. Some people see it as yellow and, and white or gold and white. If you never meet another person for the rest of your life, like if you're on, let's say you're on a, on a desert island and, the, and a photograph of the, of the dress like floated down, then you would look at it and go, oh, look, a black and blue dress. You'd have no idea that other people could see it differently. It's impossible for you to ever know that because you see it the way you see it. And the reason people see that differently is because uh, the image is overexposed. And when the brain is in the presence of an overexposed image, it will do something called subtract the illuminate. And to subtract the illuminate, you have to make a guess as to what is the color of the illuminate. People who have spent more time outdoors around windows, uh, they spend more time around blue light. And most of the things that have been overexposed to them over the course of their lifetime have been overexposed in blue. So they will subtract blue light from that photograph. People who spend more, less time outdoors or more time indoors or more time around artificial light will subtract yellow because most incandescent light is yellow. So they subtract the yellow from the image and, they, and the end result of these two different assumptions are two different images, two different realities. This is true for everything. And when I look at information that I may, I may, never, I may not have uh, been, that is ambiguous to me or I've never considered, 
I'm going to interpret it through the priors that have led me to that moment. And my conclusion may be very different from your conclusion because I am interpreting it through my lenses and you're interpreting it through your lenses. And we may end up disagreeing with one another, but in the case of, let's say the, the dress, imagine I got into an argument with you where all I wanted you to do was agree with me that it is black and blue. <laughs> and, and all you want to do is prove to me that it is not black and blue. It is yellow and gold. And we are having an argument over which one of us has the really, really true interpretation of the, of the image. And we're disregarding the fact that the image can be seen one of two different ways. And there's nothing we can do about the fact that that's how we saw it when we walked into this information. If one of us wins, both of us will lose the ability to step back from it and understand why we see it differently, which is the actual deeper truth that will lead us to a better understanding of the situation. So in that conversation with someone, even on the issues that we're talking about here, about uh, animal welfare, it should be a top priority to understand why do I see it as differently from this person? And that's the actual mystery that will lead you toward an opportunity to shift attitudes and opinions because hopefully your goal right, is animal welfare, right? That's your actual goal. Changing that person's mind is not the goal. The goal is how do I enlist this person toward a cause that I believe in? And the method of getting to that goal is to understand why do they not pursue the goal in the way that I'm pursuing it? And that's your mission is to help that person understand that the way you're pursuing that goal is a valid way of doing it. But to do so, you have to understand why do they, uh, why are they coming to this issue with a different interpretation than I am from the get-go. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. For the record, I, uh, I'm a golden white dress here. I can do both ways, but golden white. So our field has changed a lot in the last few decades. Like I say, even in the last 10 years, even the last two years, the pandemic really forced a lot of change in a, in a very short amount of time. So this time of transition, if that's sort of the right word, the way to look at it, is we've got a lot of new things coming at everyone pretty quickly. So you know, for folks that are, you know, newer to the movement, or maybe they've been doing it a while, but they were, you know, they didn't get training, they weren't connected to a larger group to learn and evolve together, like we can now with all the online capabilities. Like, I can only imagine for some people, the last two years, it's like getting bombarded, like drinking from a fire hose, trying to figure out what's what. I do think there are people who won't act in good faith. A lot of the conversations online, though, I do see are mostly civil, you know, adoption practices, that's usually a barn burner of a topic uh, and can go south pretty quickly. Because if you aren't doing this, then it's not a big leap for someone to suggest directly or indirectly that by doing X instead of Y, you're actually making it harder to save lives. Which means if we're going to peel back that veil, not so thin veil, in fact, what you're doing might be responsible for more healthier, treatable animals dying. I mean, you can understand like how and why that goes south so quickly. So my understanding of the backfire effect is that when you're presented with evidence that challenges a belief or attitude you have, instead of it giving you pause and saying, oh, that's a different way for me to think about it, it actually does the opposite. Uh, you know, you can reject the evidence and actually support your original stance even more. So when we're talking about these things and, and the activism and, and the things that we do, I always worry there's like almost like a one shot potential. I've got your ear, David. I'm going to tell you something and I better make it count. Otherwise, I may just lose you forever. Well, see, you, know? you do only have one shot if you do that. So here, here's my advice here. 
if you make someone feel othered or you make them feel like you're, if you, if there's a subtext in that you should be ashamed for what you think about or what you feel here, then you have, you are removing them from the conversation. You are inducing uh, the type of, of reaction that has led traditionally to things like schisms in religious organizations, schisms in, in like business institutions. You're encouraging them to, to think in a tribal way. You're encouraging them to go, okay, well, there are other people who agree with me and we're going to go have our own party and you can go do whatever you're going to go do. You're encouraging that behavior and you, it'll feel like you only have one shot because every time you do that, you lose people. But there's a other way of doing it, which is instead of it, like avoid that, it's like you're avoiding, like it's a loaded gun, like avoid it so much, like avoid othering as much as possible. Because what you want to do is create an environment where you can have continuing, continuing conversations with people. People often alter their views or change their views of the course of three, five, 10, 20 conversations. If you make it impossible to have 20 conversations with a person, it's over. So you don't just have one shot if you create the atmosphere where you can continue to have a conversation with a person over time and they feel invited to that conversation and that their views are valid, their views are, are something they can't help, they can't help but see it the way they see it, that their input is valuable to you and that because there's an overarching mission here, which is not whether or not we are currently correct, it is that we both want this outcome. And if we can both agree that we want that outcome, then you and I can work together toward that outcome and I can pull some from you, you can pull some from me. If you really communicate that that's what we're doing, you have much more success and you don't have to worry about, oh no, I've induced the backfire effect. The backfire effect is complicated and strange and there's all sorts of things that go in and out of it. It's failed replication in some ways and it's replicated in others. But what it usually comes down to is a, um, a, a, a reactance to uh, being shamed is what it really usually almost always comes down to. Humans change their mind through something called assimilation accommodation. I'll very briefly explain this because it helps. When a child sees a dog for the first time, they point at it and go, what's that? Or they do anything. And you say dog, they now know that's dog. What's happening in their mind is they're thinking something along categorically in some way. They're thinking um, small, non-human, furry, four, walks on four legs, something like that. This is now a category I've created called dog. Then they see a horse. This often happens with children. They'll point and go dog. You say, no, no, not a dog, horse. Well, in their mind, they just were like, oh. So things that aren't humans and that are furry and have four legs aren't all dogs. There are many different kinds of things like that. And horses are one kind, dogs are another, which means I have to create a new category called animal. And that is a huge moment. Their mind is explodes. It is a mind expanding psychedelic experience for a human being to create a new perceptual category under which other things they had experienced are now folded into it. They actually have to create a new layer of understanding to make sense of the world. In psychology or neuroscience, that's called accommodation. Attempting to fit new information to what you already know is called assimilation. That's when the, that's a child saying that horse is a dog. And changing how you understand the world to accommodate information into a new layer of understanding is when the child says that's a horse. This is how minds change. However they change, that's how they change. It's through either assimilation or accommodation. It's through seeing something new in the world and saying, that's an example of what I already know. And it may be you trying to say, I see what I expect to see here. And therefore I do see something that is everything. Basically you're saying I'm right. But with, when it comes to accommodation, you have to say, oh, the world is a little bit more complicated than I thought it was. And I have to accommodate something. This is also what you're attempting to do with people who may not understand that these methods that feel right and good are actually harming the cause more than they're helping the cause. 
they're taking you away from the goal instead of going toward it. And for a person to accept that that's true, they must accommodate in some way. There's some there's something within what you're trying to get across to them that is necessitating them understand that it's a bit more complex than they first assumed. Accepting that that's just normal and natural and people will do that and they might resist uh, accommodating because it's a dangerous thing. Being wrong is dangerous, right? You don't want to change your mind if you don't have to. If you don't communicate that in a way that is, um, they aren't stupid or evil for having seen it the way they see it when they first entered the conversation, you will get away from backfire. Backfire won't happen because you're, you're nobody wants to be stupid or evil. <laughs> so they, unless you're, you know, unless you are an actual evil being, you just want to go with this. This is what uh, the, everybody has had an argument on the internet or with a family member that went off the rails and you feel like you lost that person and you'll never be able to talk about that topic with them again. If you like, walk into that conversation saying, I'm not, I'm going to avoid that outcome. More. And that's my, that's the most important thing to me in this conversation is avoiding that outcome. You'll get, you will be much more likely to achieve the goal you're trying to achieve. David, source is always an interesting concept. Uh, you know, who do you even trust in this day and age? You know, as I said earlier, I think a lot of my beliefs and attitudes in animal welfare have been shaped through my interactions with others. I seek out experts in certain areas because they're experts. But that's just an expert to me, isn't it? You know, that person could have a resume that's 10 miles long, but just because I think they're an expert doesn't mean they actually are an expert or that anyone else would agree they're an expert, if that makes any sense. Uh, related to what we're talking about here, you can think about vaccine hesitancy. Many people look at vaccine hesitancy and they get very upset because they're like, why won't these people who won't take the vaccine just trust the experts? You may not say that explicitly. That may not even come out or be articulated in your own mind, but that usually is where your frustration is coming from because people are not actually debating whether or not the vaccines are useful or safe. That's not actually, even though that feels like the conversation we're having, what we're actually debating is, can I trust these sources? And what you should be asking is, why do I trust the sources that I trust? If I believe vaccines are safe and effective and we should get them, ask yourself, why do I feel that way? One of the things you're going to have to admit to yourself is you are not a vaccine expert. You, you are not a virologist. You're not an epidemiologist. You're not a doctor, which means you are getting your information from some source you consider trustworthy. I'm assuming for most people that will be a scientist or a doctor, and there may be a spokesperson for scientists and doctors who's been appointed by the government. Well, okay. Now, once we have the government involved, we have to enter to another level of trust. Do I trust the government? Do I have reason not to trust the government? I'm being asked to trust three different things now, scientists, doctors, and politicians. You may have at this point in your life reached a place where you don't trust scientists, you don't trust doctors, you don't trust politicians, and you have your own reasons why. Perhaps if I had had lived the life that you lived, I also wouldn't trust those sources. But I've lived a different life than you, and I have reason to trust these three domains. Maybe I don't trust politicians. Maybe I trust scientists. And just in this in this case, I'm able to like go, yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't care. That politician is just telling me something that a scientist already told me. So my trust is within the science. So why do you trust scientists? That's a real question you should answer yourself because the inverse of it will help you understand why another person might not trust scientists. What you're really trying to do when you're trying to, to address vaccine hesitancy oftentimes is you want the other party to trust the sources you trust for the same reasons you trust them. And if you don't engage them on that level where you're asking like, well, how come you don't trust them? Where is it coming from? And then you're not really having the conversation you think you're having. In negotiation, they call this a, a confusion between intentions versus propositions, right? The story that I was told to make this make sense to me was the story of the 
two girls who both want an orange and they're like, give me the orange. And like the dad has to decide who gets the orange. They just both say, I want the orange. But then he asks, well, why do you want the orange? And one girl says, I want to make a, I need the rind because I need, I want to make a cake with the zest. And the other says, I want to make orange juice. So I just need the pulp. Well, now it turns out what they had expressed isn't actually what they wanted. It was just simpler to say, I want the orange than to go into why. But once we understood the why, it turned out, well, yeah, you can have the rind, I can have the pulp, and everybody's happy. You can have a, a similar construction with like something like vaccine hesitancy, but only it only happens when you start asking why. Why are you hesitant? The assumption, you know, oftentimes, because we do trust scientists, we just say, well, look at these facts. <laughs> look at this. I Googled this thing. Watch this thing. And oddly enough, you'll sometimes be countered by people who go, well, then look at this thing that I looked up and watch this video. And what they're doing is the same thing that you're doing to them. They're saying, when I watched this and read this, it seemed true to me because of the way I feel about this already. When you watch this and you read this, it seemed true to you because of the way you feel about it already. So what we need to do is have a conversation about where are these feelings coming from? And we're much more likely to reach a place of agreement at that point. Because I'm assuming the person who's vaccine hesitant does not want to die from COVID. You know, they don't want that. So how do we get to that goal in a way that is, instead of me trying to get you to get there the way I got there, how do I get there the way you need to get there? You're much more likely to get there using that construction than trying to just, just use the facts that seem to compel you because they don't compel them. You know, the more I dig into this and think about it, you know, you've taught me my brain is not really a very good friend to me sometimes. So I do start to question almost like my own reality. Like, how do I know that I'm not just Dunning-Krugering myself uh, and, and so people are aware Dunning-Kruger, it's a cognitive bias that, uh, it's where people vastly overestimate their own abilities. Uh, do you know what I mean? I feel like, like, how do I know what is real? I guess what I'm asking is what is it like to live in your brain? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this probably fits some psychological profile. I've read stuff like this, but like I, I get a thrill. I get an emotional thrill for being wrong. Right. I get an emotional thrill out of discovering a pocket of ignorance I wasn't aware of. This is not true for everybody. There's a profile, psychological profile called um, high need for cognition and, and stuff like that. There's also narcissistic tendencies that, that so you sort of gaslight yourself and you gaslight everybody around you. People are on a spectrum when it comes to this, but you know, I wasn't always like this. I feel like I'm on a path that I'm not nearly close to the end of our, my arc. I sometimes have guests that feel like they're farther along in this regard and I find them very compelling. People like Scott Barry Kaufman recently was like, I was like, wow, you really are where someplace I'd rather be than where I'm at personally. But for me, it's like the greatest gift you can get is the feeling of like seek disconfirmation before confirmation. Like it's, it's, it's huge. It's a part of critical thinking that changes everything about how you live your life. I think that people who were born into, into the internet have this more, um, this is more likely to be part of like your day-to-day -day than, than a person who is over a certain age. I think once you get past 50-ish, you didn't live in, a, in an information ecosystem where everybody could be lying and misleading and could be conspiratorial you know, maniacs. Like you didn't live in that world. So you didn't have this sort of built-in skepticism about things. But I think a lot of people who were born into the internet, people who are especially in their like teens and twenties right now, they already feel this way. Like they see something online, they don't they don't just believe it outright, uh, and they don't necessarily just go to sources that only agree with them. But the number one thing is is seek disconfirmation before confirmation at all times, which is which comes down to whatever you believe strongly, whatever you feel strongly, whatever your values are. Have you investigated people who disagree with that? Have you considered the null hypothesis? If I was wrong, what would that look like? Have you attempted to look for evidence that would show that the null hypothesis is more likely to be correct? Especially if you feel strongly, like really notice when you have a knee-jerk emotional reaction that's visceral to an issue. 
same-sex marriage was like that for me, but that was because I had friends and family who were deeply affected by the issue. And it felt very, almost immediately viscerally wrong to deny people in my life something that I got through privilege, right? But also things like universal healthcare and other issues that are political, like I feel very strongly about them. But then I have to ask myself, why does that make me angry? It almost goes all the way back to the beginning of You Are Not So Smart. I was getting into an argument about Xbox versus PlayStation, and I got very mad that somebody was suggesting that the PlayStation was not a superior gaming device. But then I, had to, I took a step back and was like, why am I angry? Like, this is a box of wires. Like, why am I angry? Why am I angry? Which leads to this whole world of like understanding yourself on a deeper level. For me personally, though, like what gives me the most, what gives me the, what has given, propelled me farther in life is trying to disconfirm my assumptions first. I, I think that the, the sort of disconfirmation is the, the, the tippity top of my list of things that will lead to uh, escape into vast pockets of ignorance that will lead you to find awe in the universe over and over again and establish a humility that we can all share. And I believe in unity through humility, which is the whole essence of you are not so smart. When I say you, I'm talking about me. I'm talking about all of us. Uh, if you've ever locked your keys in your car or walked into a room and, and been like, wait, why did I walk in here? Like, uh, <laughs> then recognize that physicists also do that. Astronauts do that. Doctors do that. We're all human beings trying our best. So we need some sort of system by which to counteract our basic nature and get more, more closer and closer to what I would say is quote unquote, the truth. If you could only see what I saw or read what I read, I see that so much in animal welfare and really any kind of cause driven activism. You know, you had this moment of enlightenment as a person and you want to tell the world, you got a fire in your belly about it. Like this is a thing I learned and I want everybody to know about it. And since we've hit vaccines and politics, uh, why not? Let's mention veganism. Uh, I'm a vegan. I've been vegan for uh, about 10 years. My wife, Colleen, and I uh, started a local guide for vegans, and, and that included some elements of activism, right? We'd throw events and that kind of stuff. And I think what we found to be really effective is just talking to people and realizing that any decision that anyone makes for any reason that uses fewer animal products that for us, that meets the goals of harm reduction, right? Not, not everybody has to become like Joaquin Phoenix overnight. And I think if you're trying to do that, you're probably going to have a very tough road ahead. But I have watched for 10 years, I've watched vegans like go bananas, uh, pardon the phrase, on people trying to really force is maybe the best word, but force people to have the same moment of enlightenment in the way that they did. So if I watched a movie, for example, that flipped that switch for me, then I get it. Like you would think, well, if everybody just watched the same movie I did, right? The whole world will just see what I've just seen, except maybe that movie or that book or that TED talk, whatever. It's, it's not going to be for me. Maybe it's too graphic or maybe it's too weepy or whatever. Like this idea that there's one path is I think really too pervasive. Um, you know, everyone has different motives. I mean, you're, you're right on top of it. The vegan thing is a great entry point because veganism is, is like a lot of things becomes an identity over time or it can. And once it enters the space of an identity, you may find yourself defending the identity more than the cause. You may be defending the fact that you chose to do this more than the thing that you've chosen to do. And the other person will pick up on that in a conversation where they feel like that's what you're attempting to, to persuade them on, is persuade them to adopt your identity, not your behavior. 
And you can tell you're doing that if you feel that certain type of anger or a certain type of emotional thrust in a conversation where the identity seems to be pulling closer and closer to the center of, the, of what we're talking about. And the thing that we're trying to discuss is moving more to the perimeter of what we're talking about. That you're talking about, you saw a video that compelled you. That's good. That's so great because you have identified that compelled me, but that's you. And there's a million things that led up to the, to you finding that compelling. Another person may see the same video and not feel what you felt. And if you accept that doesn't necessarily mean they wouldn't agree with you. That doesn't necessarily mean they wouldn't feel strongly the feelings that you feel currently. It's just that what they feel at the moment in the presence of that video will not be what you feel in the moment. You can't give them the life that you led up until seeing that video. Instead, you need to meet them where they are and then move backwards from there. So do they at the very minimum agree on something that is related to veganism? Like, is there something within that domain they, they, that matches their value system? And if we go, if we work from that angle, we're more likely to, to pull them over into the domain that we're in. And then ask yourself, like, why do you want to pull them over into your domain? Is it because you want them to be more like you? You want them to, do you want them to share your identity? Do you want them to validate the choices you've made so that you feel like you're a good person? If so, those are bad reasons to do anything. What you need to be saying is, is hopefully you feel strongly that this makes the world better. That's what you're trying to compel the other person to do is make a better world. And that should be the focus of the conversation. A huge thank you to David McRaney. I truly am a fan of his work. And if this kind of thing is interesting to you at all, his books are a great way to get into the topic. It's very digestible. And of course, he's funny, as you just heard. Uh, and his podcast, You Are Not So Smart, we're going to have links to all of that up on our website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. The team behind this program, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast. <laughs>